You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hey, what is up, folks? This might sound a little bit weird, I'm coming to you from a iced-over Taco Bell parking lot in downtown Portland. Um, I had to drive to go get some fuel for my vehicles and also to try to find some cell phone reception so I could blast this file over to my guy Nick over at Playback Engineering who does the editing for this podcast. Shout out, Nick, if you... uh, Need any editing done, audio editing. He is a wizard. Check him out on Instagram at Playback Engineering. But anyway, I wanted to give you all an update uh, and explain why this episode is most likely going to be a little bit late. So we had a major ice storm in the Pacific Northwest that seemingly took out half of our trees. um, And part of the damage done there was I've been without power since Friday evening. I'm actually... Okay, that is one of the craziest things that has ever happened. I was in the middle of explaining and recording into my phone uh, that we don't have power and probably won't have power till Tuesday. Literally in the middle of me recording this into my phone, my wife calls me and tells me that the power is back on. So this intro may be completely useless. Uh, (laughs) I don't really know. Uh, But I will... uh, Drive home and see what happens, and hopefully I can get this episode out on time. What I was saying is I'm probably going to be late because of this major ice storm in Portland. Um, But yeah, apparently the power is back on. So uh, if it's late, (laughs) you'll know that it's late because uh, the power went back off and I had no internet. If it's on time, you'll know the weird story that just happened to me, so... Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to drive home and see what happens. I was, I literally drove up to Portland to get fuel for the vehicles and to get uh, uh, some reception to send this file off, but we'll see what happens. Regardless, I hope you enjoy this episode with Mr. Rhett Scholl. It's a great, it's a great episode. Uh, as we explain, it's a re-recording of something we already did, and we'll get into that, but now I'm too excited. I got to get home and see what's going on. All right, uh... Thank you all for listening. Thanks for the support and uh, all that jazz. Here's your episode with Mr. Rhett Scholl. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, once in a while, and sometimes not. With me today, I have Mr. Rhett Scholl from YouTube land. What's going What's on, up, man? Man, I'm really glad we're doing this, and I hope we have better luck than we did last time. <laughs> yeah, we should tell the audience this is uh, our second time <laughs> on, mm-hmm. on the pod, but apparently the first time going public. So it's the, you know, that conversation was just for us. No one else needs to have it. It was. So. Yep. 
yeah, what happened uh, was basically we got the files and uh, they went poof. That's pretty much what happened. We lost. We lost them. Do I, do I need to be recording on my end? I can't remember. You can't. You don't have to. You can if you want to do a backup. Got it. Okay. Um, I'm gonna. You know what? I'm gonna throw caution to the wind and just say no. Let's let's trust the system again. See what happens. <laughs> I like to do it a little dangerous. Let's do it. I think we actually didn't use the system last time, and that's why oh. we had we had chaos. We tried to go outside of the bounds, and uh, it shot us down. They said no. Right. You will. You will comply. You will comply. <laughs> but you've had so much. So many things going on for a very long time, and I know we talked about your origin story last time, but uh, we should probably start start from there again for everyone that hasn't heard that because that was just for me apparently. <laughs> yeah, um, man, it's it's been uh, well. I started playing guitar at like thirteen years old, thirteen or fourteen. I can't actually remember how old I was, but sort of the classic. Got a guitar for Christmas, cheap little, you know, knockoff Strat starter pack with like the little five watt transistor amp that sounded horrible. Um, but immediately fell in love with it, man. I was like learning songs off the radio and and just playing every day, not knowing what I was doing. And um, nobody in my family was musical. Nobody, you know, played guitar or any other instruments. Um, and it was just it was just me kind of figuring it out. And this would have been like, oh, three i think 2003 somewhere in there and Mm -hmm. um so you know pre-youtube the internet was around but uh, you know it was really just like ultimateguitar.com was all i really knew about and to me that was like the edge of the guitar universe if it didn't exist on there in tab form it like didn't exist basically and um yeah started learning songs by ear you know listening to to records and stuff stuff that friends would turn me on to and and learning that way was completely self-taught had no teacher had no nothing and did that for like the first five or six years uh playing went through high school barely graduated went to a year of college promptly failed out went to a semester of community college promptly failed out and figured that like school was probably not my thing but found out about this music school here in atlanta called atlanta institute of music and um ended up enrolling when i was like 20 years old that would have been 2000. 10 is when I started and um, yeah, went through a year of music school and that was the first time school ever made sense to me and graduated and I've been uh, out playing guitar for my job ever since. That is uh, living the dream as, as what some people would say, right? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't <laughs> feel like that, but other times it does. It's it's like any other gig, I would, I would guess. I've never had like a, I mean, I've had other jobs, but they've all been just sort of like dead end hourly kind of gigs and never had like a quote unquote real job before. So I have no idea how that compares to the real world. Well, I mean, I've, I've done both and I can say, you know, I haven't like been a performing musician uh, or anything, but as far as doing, you know, a blue collar type career versus what I'm doing now, I can say definitely that this is much more enjoyable despite, you know, there being additional pressure from like, Hey, no one's going to do this for you. You have to do it all. Like that gets a little bit daunting, but for my personality type, it's much better than having a boss. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Dude, the more people I meet in this industry, the more I realize that we all sort of have 
that one thing in common. It doesn't matter what you do. If you like play full time or you're an artist or, you know, you're a content creator, but it, it kind of all boils back to that. We're all terrible employees and mm-hmm. we, none of us really want to work for other people. Uh, and I think that's kind of the key to success in this side of the industry, you know? Yeah, it's a, you know, and you can get into a situation in this business where you end up not being able to make your own decisions. I remember I did a podcast with the JD Simo. Yeah. And and he was talking about his session days, basically, and how it just started to feel like a job, like, like a really grindy kind of job because he wasn't working on anything that he cared about. Yeah. And so you know, he, he made that pivot and he like brought music back for him, which I could totally see getting into that mindset. Oh, I've, I've been there more than once actually in the last 10 years. I mean, I, you know, most of my time as a player, especially early on, was just taking whatever gig I could get. And, and most of them were really terrible. Like, Hey, this artist is playing this, uh, quote unquote festival gig. And, you know, you show up to the gig and it's like, we're playing on a trailer, like a flatbed trailer. And there's 15 people there, like basically in the backyard of like some church or something. Uh, There's a lot of gigs like that. And then that sort of grew into being like a hired gun and and luckily bigger and, and better gigs came through the years. But no matter what I was able to do, you know, it always, when I was playing for somebody else exclusively, um, there's always something for me that was lacking. And and even like, you know, the biggest burnout point I ever got to was playing in the mega church world here in Atlanta. I did that for like six years, almost. Ex- well, most of my income at that point was was through that because, you know, these huge churches, 10, 15, 20,000 member churches. It's almost like playing an arena every Sunday and they're consistent, man. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, you've got a gig and they paid really well. and so it was super easy to get sucked into that vortex of getting comfortable and relying on that paycheck every week without actually realizing that it was sucking my soul, so to speak. Ironically. Yeah. Ironically. (laughs) And um, yeah, it got really bad there to the point where I was like contemplating giving up guitar. I wasn't playing anything. I wasn't listening to music at all. Like I would come home from a church gig and, the next time my guitar would come out of its case was like the following week for rehearsal for the next Sunday. It was pretty, pretty bad for a while. Do you look back on the, that time and are like, what a weird feeling? Cause it's gotta be worlds different than what you're in now. Well, I'm, I'm actually really thankful for that time because the, the biggest thing that that job, which is what it was playing in those mega churches was a job. Um, what it did for me was two things. A, it got me on stage with literal pro musicians. Um, because these churches were so so big and had a lot of resources, they could afford to hire like some of the best players around the Atlanta area. And um, Atlanta's got a long history as like a music town. So there's some heavy hitter players still here. Definitely. And so, especially when I was younger, I got to spend a lot of time in rehearsals and on stage with some some really killer musicians, drummers, keys players, bass players, guitar players, singers. 
And just being around that was so educational for me. And the second thing it did was give me reps on stage. And it doesn't matter in my mind, like what the stage is, if it's a mega church or a bar gig, which I did tons of that stuff or arenas or theaters, whatever, like the, the time spent on stage playing with other people in front of other people is really, really valuable. And so I literally played hundreds and hundreds of Sundays and Wednesdays um, just getting those reps in. And so it allowed me to get the experience um, to go on and take on the bigger gigs that I got later on. And then now talk about a lot of stuff on, on YouTube, you know? When did the YouTube thing start for you? When did you realize that that was something you wanted to pursue? Well, I've had my channel since 2009, but it, I started it as, you know, I jumped on YouTube and just decided like, Oh, I might as well have an account so I can, you know, watch these videos or whatever. And then, right when I was getting out of music school, I started kind of getting interested in cameras and stuff. Um, I was just interested in photography and and I've always loved YouTube since like 2008, 2009. It's, it's always been what I watch more than Netflix or anything else. I, I love YouTube. And, um, you know, so through the years I would sit and start to mess around with, you know, I'm going to make a video. I'm going to swap the speaker, in my blues junior, or I'm going to, improvise over this jam and put that up and then so it was like every six or eight months i'd get a wild hair and like put a video up on my channel and then completely forget about it i mean it was five years before i realized that i had any comments on any videos and (laughs) i freaked out because one video that i'd put up in 2011 or 12 or something and forgotten about ended up getting a hundred thousand views and I didn't realize it until like three years later. And I went and looked at this thing and was like, oh my God, I got to take this down. This is terrible. <laughs> so many people have seen this. It sucks. And um, yeah, it, it kind of just was always in the back of my mind. Like, man, I'd love to make YouTube videos. I'd love to start a channel. And uh, so I tried in like 2015, 2016 to start making videos. And um, I let some friends of mine talk me out of it. Some people told me that it wasn't, Basically, it wasn't cool. Um, and it really got in my head. So I let them talk me out of it. And then not long after that, my friend Rick uh, Beato got into it and started having some success. And so long story short, was on a touring gig based out of Nashville with a band called Muddy Magnolias. Um, end of 2017, beginning of 2018, that gig ended and I was basically off the road. And I uh, just decided my New Year's resolution for 2018 was I want 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. And I think I hit like just over 30 in that first year. Nice. Nice. Yeah. The, the YouTube thing really is a, I call it a thing cause I don't know what else to call it, but it's, a, you know, it's content creation, but it's interesting in my very limited experience. I have like the world's smallest guitar YouTube channel. Cause I have <laughs> kind of not done a lot with it until uh, actually until 2020, I, I made a challenge to myself to do, 30 videos in 30 days mm. and I was doing really well. And I, I was like, I'm feeling, I understand why this is difficult and I knew it was going to be really hard. And I did end up failing that challenge, but I feel like I had a pretty good excuse. We were on an evacuation notice due to the fires right. in our area. So I was yeah. like, you know, I am burnt out, but also I'm not in a good mental space to be doing this. These videos, if I force myself to do the rest of the, the month 
they're just going to be horrible because I do not care about doing this right now. I am so yeah. freaked out. <laughs> you you talk about burnout. I mean, that literally like that's that is I can't imagine, you know, having to deal with something like that. Being from the East Coast, that's not really in our lexicon of natural disasters down here. I mean, we have tornadoes and ice storms and stuff like that. But but wildfires, man, <laughs> that's that's a that's a different thing. That's the thing is that we don't really have them in the Portland metro area either. Right. It's not really a thing that we're used to dealing with in the Willamette Valley. Usually, you know, in California and whatever, when those fires, see, when the quote unquote fire season starts, it's because we don't we don't experience it because right then is when our rain season hits. Right. And, you know, Portland famously is rainy. But this year, uh, the, it was a literally a perfect storm. They had a a, re, a long dry spell and then a windstorm come through. And it was the weirdest feeling. It was so strange because, you know, it's fall, I believe, is when this was. Like, just right at the beginning of September. Yeah. I can't remember now. I've tried to erase it from my brain. But I I got done doing a video out here. And they said, you know, be careful at 5 p.m. on this day. Everybody be on the lookout. Like, don't start any fires. Don't do, don't do anything because there's going to be a windstorm. And it's going to be super dry, right? which I've never experienced before. And I walked out of here and it was like a nice day. And I, when I walked out, it felt like somebody was standing, you know, 10 feet away from me and blowing a hairdryer at me. I was like, Jeez, dude, this <laughs> is kind of terrifying. <laughs> like it was very odd. And, and then, you know, some trees went down, some transformers blew. Yeah, it was it was really it was really, really weird. <laughs> it was yeah, not- so it, the the 30 videos in 30 days is hard enough under normal circumstances. Uh, you know, I, that's not something that I recommend to most people. My biggest experience was seven videos in seven days, and that was enough. By day five, I was like, this is not sustainable. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, <laughs> I can't keep this up. Um, but, I mean, my, uh, Mary Spender, I don't know if you follow her at all, but she's mm-hmm. been doing that since the beginning of the year since January one, she's been uploading pretty much every day. And uh, she and I talk quite a bit and keep up. And it's like, man, she's always had just a crazy work ethic and a crazy drive. And this is just like taking it to another level. I have all the respect in the world for her that she's, she's made it as far as she has and she's killing it, man. It's doing great for her channel. Yeah. She is doing a really good job. And why I brought it up was because I, what I, where I was going with that before I got sidetracked was YouTube is definitely like you put in the work and you will see results. It's going to be to varying degrees for different people. But, you know, granted, my channel's still tiny, but it more than doubled in that couple week period when I was doing it. Yes. You know, it, like it was very much. And then once I stopped, you know, it the growth stopped. Right. <laughs> so it's, like, it's an interesting thing, man. I was having this conversation this this morning with someone about this who they have a substantial Instagram following and they're interested in kind of crossing over into YouTube, a guitar player. And, and he and I were talking and I just said, look, man, like you can do it. The thing is like Instagram and YouTube, YouTube is its own beast altogether. I mean, each social media platform really is its own thing, but YouTube specifically like the YouTube algorithm is basically your publicist. Its entire job, the whole algorithm exists to essentially find content that will keep people on YouTube longer. 
And so if you understand that at sort of a fundamental level, then you can sort of crack the code, so to speak, of what makes a successful YouTube channel. It's about making really good content that people like to watch and they like to watch most of the video. And when you when you do that, then the algorithm starts to pick you up and starts to push your channel. But in order to even get there, you have to be posting consistently, um, whether it's once a week or once a day, if you're going to take that <laughs> on. Like, um, the, the consistent posting and, and consistently delivering good quality content that is um, what I call transactional, meaning it's people are getting something from your video. They're learning something. They're being entertained while they learn something. Um, they're getting your opinion on something. It's it's got to it's got to add value in some way. And if you can do those things and kind of stitch them together, then, yeah, you're right. You will find success. Yeah, it's and with the Instagram thing, that's interesting, too, because in my like limited experience, getting people to hop from Instagram to a podcast is really hard. Yeah, uh, my podcast uh, announcement posts always perform really poor, honestly, right. on Instagram. And I'm still going to do it like I'm still going to put them out there. So whoever does see them will you know see them and hopefully respond. But the YouTube posts when I'm like, I got a new video. Oh man, those do great. The people immediately, there's like, you know, if I do a podcast one, I'll get, you know, 14, 15 people that click over to the podcast. Yeah. The YouTube video, it's like, oh, I've got 70 people clicking over to go check it out. And I found that really interesting. And I think it's the, uh, the immediacy of a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're going to click it. You're going to watch it. Like, it's going to be there. It's going to work. You're going to see it. With a podcast, it's like, okay, I got to have time you know, I got to save an hour at some point. To right. Do that. Well, I you bet know. there's also something too. you know, people are already looking at their phones and they're already consuming something that is visual, right? Instagram is pretty much completely visual. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense if you're already in that mood of watching something that you'll click over to just watch something else, maybe a little longer format. Sure. But like, yeah, I'm already staring at my phone and I'm watching videos. Uh, or looking at pictures, oh, there's a new, you know, there's a new whatever video out from so-and-so. I'm going to go, you know, check that out real quick. And then I can come back to Instagram. Whereas, yeah, you're right. The podcast thing is a completely different format, way more investment of your time. And I even I find this way, like I love podcasts. When I'm in the car, I primarily listen to podcasts. But if I'm not in the car, I don't really listen to any podcasts because it's like I'm always doing other stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For me, podcasts are the thing that I put on when I'm doing something else, whether that's yard work or whatever, you know, driving, you know, that's that's the thing that runs and keeps me engaged while I'm doing something boring, basically. (laughs) Uh, And YouTube and and other forms of content there. You're right. You're already in it. It, Like going to a YouTube video. It's you're you've already decided that you're going to scroll Instagram. Right it's not any different to go click the link over to YouTube if it's something you're somewhat interested in. So that, that does make sense. But whoever you were talking to, I guess I would say, I mean, they should go for it because it's, it's a lot easier to get people to hop over there than it is to get them to hop over to a podcast. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is too, man, like I've, I've become sort of an evangelist for the YouTube platform or just social media in general for musicians specifically around like, hired gun musicians or like pro players that are incredibly talented and that have 
you know, you, you have to want to do it, first of all. Like, that's the thing. You can't, I definitely don't recommend any kind of social media account for someone that's just not interested. You, you really have to have the core desire to like want to share, you want to teach, you want to have a voice and you want people to pay attention and listen. If that's there in, and you know, I have plenty of friends, especially over 2020 during the pandemic, when all the gigs went away, I talked to plenty of peers in Nashville that were like, Hey, think about starting this thing. You know, what, what, do I, what do I do? And if you, if you have the, the passion for it, if you have the patience for it, um, and you have, you know, uh, some, some wherewithal in terms of understanding analytics, understanding how to put together compelling content, things like that, you know, it can really give a lot of, um, over a long term, I should point out, it can give you a, a musicians a lot of financial freedom that they wouldn't normally have outside of their gig because most pro musicians have something that, you know, amateur musicians or hobby musicians want, which is experience and knowledge. And, um, you know, so you, you do things like put video courses together, you know, put lessons together, put, you know, try and grow your your email list and send out PDFs, whatever it is. There's there's a really great way for musicians to monetize this thing um, over a long term. And, and I should point that out. I mean, it's not going to happen after a month's worth of work. Like it's going to take 12 to 18 months worth of work before you get to that point. But um it's it's cool to me, man, because it it sees it shows me that it's like putting the power back in the hands of a lot of um, players and, and musicians. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's a really, really great thing for creatives of all sorts. I mean, I have a I have a text chat that goes along with this this podcast where we talk a lot about like music business things and content creation and, you know, business stuff for creatives, because that that's something that I've become really passionate about and you know there's there's people who ignore that side of it and i understand why you wouldn't it's not like super glamorous or anything but it can really change the game for you i mean you know there's there's a guy named aaron marshall and he has a like a progressive metal project called intervals yeah. intervals yeah yeah, uh, yeah. i've met yeah, aaron. So, oh dude he's he's really smart <laughs> on top yeah. of being very good um, there's a podcast called the punk rock NBA podcast. And he came on there and was talking about how during, you know, during the pandemic, like weirdly, you know, without touring, everyone talks about like touring, like it's this thing that that's how musicians make money. What they don't ever say is that some tours lose money. <laughs> most <laughs> you know? tours lose money. Yeah. That, that's the thing. Like most tours lose money. The, the, the people that actually make money on the road, are the artists that either a they have uh, a huge label backing where they're they're paying for everything the the other side to that is the label Tr traditionally nowadays the only record deal that really exists is the 360 deal where the the mm -hmm. label is basically taking a cut of every dollar that comes in you sell a t-shirt label gets a cut you sell a ticket you get a stream you know what whatever you get a sponsorship the things like that um so the other way it happens is if you're an established artist with an established fan base and that takes oftentimes decades, man, it really yep. just takes time. And so they've been on tours that lose money for most of or a large portion of their careers up until that point. Um, but yeah, the idea that, you know, you put an album out, you put a debut album or sophomore album out, you know, you get a radio hit or something 
you make a ton of money from album sales, from mechanical royalties, and then you go out on the road and you start making a ton of money in ticket sales. Like in my experience, playing with artists, some that had label backing, some that didn't, that just doesn't happen anymore, man. And most tours, like if you break even at the end of a tour, you've done well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the weird thing. Like the the mainstream message for the most part is you make money on tour. And what Aaron was talking about on that podcast, he was like, man, 2020, we've done better than we ever have because right. we weren't spending a bunch of money on tour and streams went up because, you know, what else are people going to be doing? Right. And because he owns everything that he's done, he didn't have to cut the label in or whatever. I mean, I don't know exactly what his arrangements are, but the way he was describing it is like, he gets, you know, stream is tiny and that's why people don't make very much. Oftentimes it's because there's so many people taking a piece of that already tiny little, you know, fraction yeah. of a cent. Um, but if you can keep all of that and you're somebody that is, you know, can routinely sell out 500 cap rooms anywhere in the U S you're probably going to be okay if you can maintain ownership of that stuff. Right. And that's what I meant earlier when, you know, the social media thing's kind of putting the power back in the hands of the musicians and the artists is because in some ways the gatekeepers are dead, right? Like used to before, you know, social media and internet, if, if you wanted exposure as an artist or band, you had to have a deal. You couldn't get distribution. You couldn't get publishing. You know, you couldn't get radio airplay without, the industry behind you. And uh, I think the industry, you know, that is pretty much before my time, but from what I understand of it, you know, the industry was essentially set up that way, right? That every, you, you basically had to pay to play for a while. Um, and I think that definitely still exists, but for the most part, man, on the level that I operate and, and the people that I know, the level that they operate, very, very few people have labels deals now. And if they do, it's it's only for maybe one aspect. It's for distribution or it's for publishing or whatever. And and the the thing is, streaming now has completely changed the power structure of the the entire industry in the favor of the labels. Man, the labels are still making money. They've of just course. they're they're taking it out of the hands of the artists and forcing the artists to go out on the road and tour so that they can make a little money um, off of their record that the label owns. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of silver linings that have and will come out of the shutdown and the pandemic of 2020 amidst all the, the terrible things that came from it. But I think one of those things is that people are now starting to see the writing on the wall in terms of the power of social media, the power of the Internet for people's careers, creatives careers, but specifically around music and artists. Definitely. It's completely changed the game. I mean, this is the first year that I've really well in a long time that I'm like making music to make music and not mm -hmm. to show off pedals or whatever. Uh, and I'm, you know, got an EP I'm working on. I'm really fired up, but like nobody, I've got people that are already like following the project and it's a tiny, tiny, tiny thing. And it's just me. Um, right. But like, I can't imagine anyone giving any, especially cause this is like weirdo ambient noisy, pedal based like crazy music that like it would never you know would never ever be on anything other than in maybe in the background of a horror movie or something <laughs> right but people are interested in it because you know they've heard me talk about doing all this stuff for so long and you know a handful of people are like well i'm gonna i'm gonna pop over to that instagram and give it a follow me yeah, from man. 10 years ago couldn't imagine 
there be there being anyone outside of my small circle of friends that would care at all right <laughs> about any of that stuff so it's crazy man like one of my best friends he's he's the bass player in my band now um his name's uh philip conrad but he and i we went to music school together we we've toured together with um another one of my best friends a guy named noah guthrie who's a singer songwriter americana kind of soul artist based out of south carolina we've been playing with noah for like seven or eight years now at this point and um I think back in 2019, it was Phil decided he wanted to do a project and he called it Kudzu Hill. And it was a, a brilliant instrumental project. There was also a short story that went with it. And he, he wrote everything. He produced everything. Uh, I would encourage everyone to go listen to it. It's called Kudzu Hill. It's on Spotify by Philip Conrad and it's beautiful. And, you know, Phil didn't have a, a big social media following or anything like that. Um, we did some stuff together because he had me play guitar on the record. And so I I made a YouTube video about it and, and garnered some attention that way. And at the end of 2019, we went on tour with Noah to the Netherlands. And there was a high school student that reached out to Phil um, in, I think, Dordrecht and wanted to interview him because she was a fan of his. She had found Kudzu Hill. And wanted to interview him for her high school like music production class. And so we we flew to Europe and there was a fan of this project that Phil just did by himself for his own enjoyment and everything. But because of the Internet, because of things spreading like they are now, it's like there's a fan <laughs> in Holland that that listened to it. And I thought that was so amazing. That is amazing. And I think that that is that's the thing that we got to get in our head about, like, how much I want to say this. Let me think here. You know, back in the early 2000s or the 90s or, you know, any t- basically any time before the Internet, if you got 15 people to listen to your your song, like that's like, wow, that's a big win. You right. know, like, and now it's like, oh, I, only 100 people streamed this song. Yes. It's like, oh, hold on. A hundred people streamed your song and you didn't really have to do that much to get them to do it. You just put right. it out there. You know, and, uh, you know, let alone if you put any like concerted effort into marketing or pushing it or whatever. I mean, the saturation makes it really hard. But at the same time, in my viewpoint, it's almost the best time ever to be an artist as far as like being able to actually control your ability to reach people. It's really amazing. Yes. And, And the thing is now, like, we're living through this massive shift i mean if you think about it like like how old are you if you don't mind Uh, i'm 32 okay i'm 30 so you and i have lived through you know the millennial generation we have lived through the biggest revolution in the spread of tech uh the spread of information since the invention of the printing press definitely that's that is massive. I mean, people will be studying this time, this period of time from the late 80s through the early to mid 2000s into the 2020s with the you know proliferation of the Internet, the invention and proliferation of the Internet, and then the birth of social media. You know, you and I are old enough to remember, like I remember when my we got our first computer in the house. Yeah. It was like a gateway yeah. desktop came in the cow box and all this kind of stuff. Like we'll be telling grandchildren about that one day and people will be studying this. Historians will be studying this period of time for hundreds of years after this. And so you kind of have to keep that in mind when you're talking about like 
social media and artists and getting yourself out there because what's happening now is the role and the skill set of the musician now is changing and expanding. You, you no longer are solely responsible for being great at your instrument and, and, you know, getting yourself out there and networking and stuff. You now also have to have skills as an engineer. You need to understand at least the basics of recording. You probably need to know a little bit about photography and lighting so you can make Instagram videos or, you know, make YouTube videos or promote yourself, promote your stuff. You need to know how to read analytics. You need to not know how to communicate. You need to know all these other things that musicians, even in the generation before us, never had to worry about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was just a matter of like meeting the right people and being really, really great at your instrument and being a good hang. And I feel like for us, all of that stuff still matters, plus the, all these new sort of responsibilities, um, which I think is a good thing because it gives you control. It gives you more control, I think, over your career. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I think it's harder to cut through the noise because there is so much, but that's where that creativity comes in. You know, that's where, you know, there's lots of people who are amazing musicians who just can shred up and down, who will never have anyone hear anything that they do. It's, you it's because they're not figuring out that other side of it like you're talking about like and you know you don't have to i mean you making music just for yourself is completely valid there's nothing wrong with that and that's what most people do but if you really want to do it as a job you want to pursue it as a career then you can't kind of you can't be the old man yelling at the cloud and saying well back in my day that's not how it was it's like well it's not your day anymore so When you other, want to do this, then you got to do it. You know? Yeah. And, and I don't want to like make it sound like, oh, if you're going to be successful in music, you have to have 100,000 followers and you have to. Have, and it's like, no, no, no. Most of my friends and people that I've met who have even now been on like big touring gigs and are, are on salary positions with like some of the biggest touring artists out there, you know, they, they have small to modest sized you know, Instagram accounts and following. So it's not about that exclusively. And and no. I don't want anyone out there to hear me say this stuff and think like, well, Red Shull says I have to have 50,000 followers. <laughs> if I'm successful. No, no, no. But I have been in the position where I've helped hire musicians for a tour. And like, I've been in the position where we've had to like go across Nashville and try and find like players that fit the right thing. And you know, you ask people, hey, man, we're looking for a bass player. Who do, you, who do you recommend? You get three or four names. The first thing that the artist does, the first thing that the MD does, mm-hmm. go to your Instagram account. That's the very first thing. It is it is your business card now. And um, because and what they're looking for is, A, like videos of you playing. What do you sound like? But also, you know, if it's an artist and they might be they might have a look or an image that they're going for. Like, how do you how do you dress? You know, does, does your it's just a, it's like your business card. It's like what would have been going to a bar and hanging out in the nineties or early two thousands or whatever, your Instagram account sort of does that now for a lot of musicians in that, that role. So I guess my point is that, yeah, you definitely don't need to have a, an online presence to be successful as a creative individual or uh, a musician because success is subjective and up to your own definition. But 
in my experience so far, if you want to make a living as a hired gun player or, or, you know, be able to make a living as a teacher or it just makes it way easier if you understand at least a few things about how social media works and, you know, can, can grow it a little bit. What you're talking about really hit home with me because I've been, you know, peripherally involved in the music industry. Right. And so when I, it wasn't until very, I mean, in the last few years, I've come to accept that, oh, yeah, this is what you do. You maybe aren't a musician in the traditional sense, but everything you do revolves around the music industry. So you, you know, you work in the music industry. Right. And it was really strange. I went to Summer Nam, I think it was 2019, and I got invited to watch this artist who'd been on the podcast before, Boo Ray, uh, do a live recording direct to vinyl at infrasonic uh yeah. studio nice and i i was like that sounds like so much fun i'm so excited but then i was there with like i felt like fish out of water man because i was like all these who i considered like quote-unquote real music industry people were there and it was kind of hilarious because i was like the odd man out like what's this guy doing here with his backpack and his you know <laughs> rear amps hat you know like what's he, what's he doing here and uh it was just a, a really interesting time, but everyone was like, Oh yeah, what's your IG? Everyone, everyone was asking what, what the Instagram handle was. And, right. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, I have a gear account. It's yeah, it's the tone mob. And they'd look it up and they're like, Oh, it was kind of like, Oh, that's why you're here. Right. And I was like, I don't feel like I belong here at all. <laughs> I want to speak to that for a second. Like that, that is imposter syndrome through and through. And, and listen, man, it, it takes one to know one. I, I, you know, pretty much every room I go into, whether I've, you know, been invited there or not, like Nam is the very same thing for me. It's like, well, what the hell am I like? I, I make YouTube videos. Like I, I, it's like, yeah, I've toured and, and played and everything, but uh, these guys like, Oh, that dude plays for Beyonce. And Oh, that's Jared Scharf. He played on SNL house band for the last 13 years. And Oh, you know, that, that guy is, you know, John Shanks. And, and it's like, I, I don't, I just, make videos about guitar stuff like I don't, i'm not supposed to be here this is for like actual like rock stars and actual like music industry people but if you kind of step back and take a thirty thousand foot view you are supposed to be there a because you were invited so you wouldn't have been invited if you weren't supposed to be there but b like you are in the music industry the tone mob is part of the music industry it is um and whether you compare yourself to to these you know whatever industry people or you know a and r folk or whoever else was there like it it doesn't matter and there's one other thing to touch on here which is for, for my podcast last year i interviewed um a guy named kevin kadish uh kevin is a nashville based songwriter amazing guitar player um really awesome dude he's become a really good friend of uh, mine and my wife's and Kevin, I guess he's most well known for he wrote all about that bass with Megan Trainer. Um, he was the other artist with Megan who wrote that song. So he's been massively successful as a songwriter since then because of that song. He told me something on on our podcast, which was about this industry thing. He's like, you know, some people kind of stumble into success early on. And just because somebody's in a, a higher position than you doesn't mean they know more than you. It just means that at some point they found success. 
And in an industry thing, that could mean they had one hit song 10 years ago that got their foot in the door in their room. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you aren't as qualified as them, or you don't know as much as them, or you aren't as talented as them. It just means their career has shaked out differently than yours, which is how everyone's careers go. That's true. No matter what you're doing, everyone's right. in a different place at a different time doing a different thing. It's just, it's impossible for everybody in this to be in the same position at once. So yeah. that's, yeah. But yeah, imposter syndrome is definitely what I was feeling. Big, big time. It was probably the most I've ever felt it. Uh, it was very, it was very strong, but it was a fun experience. So I'm glad that I got to do it. It was, it was really cool. Yeah, man. Uh, before we get too off track, which we've done successfully, <laughs> I think, uh, let's get to some of these questions from the Facebook group before we uh, just completely yeah. talk about social media. For the <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's go with this one. Let's see. Um, Kevin Fontana, he says, ask him about his workflow for music and video production. Does he have any tricks to make the process go smoother slash easier? especially with the live performance streams he's been doing. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, so there's those are two very different workflows. Um, so my workflow for a video is, uh, I'll, I'll go through that first, because we uh, I literally just finished a video putting it up um, right now. So basically, a condensed version is I like to have the idea, I like to have the title of the video before I start. It doesn't always happen, but I find that more often than not, the video is better overall and is more likely to be successful if I have the title down. The thing about YouTube to understand, if anyone out there is thinking about starting a YouTube channel, for better or for worse, titles and thumbnails are everything. If I could get away with making a, a video on Open G Tuning and say, this is a video about Open G Tuning, and I knew that it was going to get 100,000 views, I would, but the the algorithm does not work that way. So you have to do things like open G tuning, comma, why everyone needs to know it. And you know, <laughs> then you get called a clickbait artist and all this kind of stuff, but it's part of the part of the game. So I like to have the title in, in mind first. Um and then sometimes depending on what the video is, I have a whiteboard here and I literally just like kind of storyboard out like, hey, okay, I want to hit these points. I know I want to talk about this. I know I want to get from here to here. Oh, this could be a cool idea. Maybe we open the video this way. Or maybe I, ooh, I've been shooting in my studio for too long. Maybe I shoot in my old car. Maybe I go outside and do something a little bit different. And I just have a few, just a skeleton of the video flow. And then it's just a matter of like filming the parts and putting the stuff together. So, um, you know, the video I put out today, or I'm going to put out is ironically on Instagram and how, um, I think Instagram is becoming sort of the new guitar school. So, you know, with all the great players out there, you can save videos, you can use them to practice with, you can use them for inspiration, all this kind of stuff. So had the title in mind and it was just a matter of like filming the dialogue spots and then piecing it together in my editing software and then filling in the gaps. Like, okay, I need a transition to go from this dialogue spot to this dialogue spot. What am I going to do here? Okay, well, I could play something. I could show an example of what I'm talking about, show some B-roll, I could cut, like there's just, you start to just connect the dots. And uh, then at that point, you sort of have a, a video. Cool. Yeah. 
that's a lot different than what I do it, but yours are a lot better. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, then the live workflow, man, the live show was just a, it was a beast dude, figuring all that stuff out, um, to do it. Like we did it, uh, quite honestly, I don't know that I would recommend it to anyone. (laughs) It was like four and a half months of prep work and getting sponsors on board and like basically building a broadcast studio. Um, and boy, if you think guitar gear is expensive, camera gear is more expensive. And then broadcast gear is just on another level. So yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) I'm super glad we did it. And now I basically have a TV studio at my disposal so I can do other cool stuff. But my God, it was not, uh, I mean, we spent probably $3,000 just in cables, you know, for the whole setup in the whole show. So that pencils, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have more SDI cables than I ever, I didn't even know what an SDI cable was the last time we spoke probably. And now I have, I don't know, 300 feet of it. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's a totally different workflow altogether. Yeah. It, it looks intense and then it's, you know, the potential for things to go wrong. You can't go back and post because you're no. live. <laughs> so. Yeah, you really can't. I think the best compliment I got or that we got on that um, whole show was people that were complaining in the comments that were saying it wasn't live and that we were lying. Um, every show just about we would get that in the comments. Like, don't don't donate to them. This isn't live. They're faking it. This is all pre-recorded. And so in the last couple of shows, we got to the point where we were literally just holding our phones up to the camera saying, look, here you go. This is we're actually doing this live. <laughs> that's insane. I mean, good on you. That means you did a really good job. But that's yeah. Well, it, well, it wasn't me, man. It was, you know, our, our engineer, Andy McDonald. He was sort of the brainchild of the whole, you know, his day gig is a network network systems engineer for this big tech firm here in Atlanta. And um, he's a an audio enthusiast by night, essentially. And he's an insanely talented mix engineer. And just, it's unbelievable that, uh, that he's as good as he is at it. And so he, I brought him in at the very beginning and he basically pieced together the whole video switching rig. He, we put together the whole, um, audio system. You know, we got universal audio on board. We were using 28 tracks in real time dsp with luna and mixing in real time like that was all andy man that that figured that out but was not me that's amazing that's super impressive that's way beyond the the (laughs) ambition that i have that's insane all right let's see what else we got here uh let's see oh here's a good one okay Dylan Clay, he wants to know which builder made his MK1 from Macari's, and he has has he played any other MK1s that have came close? And we're talking about tone benders for those yes. who aren't aware. You know, my so it's the solo sound, but I know what he's asking because they they had different builders do, um, you know the the reissue Mark ones. Mm-hmm. I am not sure who made mine. I have never cracked mine open. Um, I'm looking at it right now as if staring at it will tell me what it is but it's not (laughs) it's like on the inside um so i actually don't know the answer to that question unfortunately dylan i've never looked on the inside um and the box is in storage which the box has a little information card on it but um honestly i have not played any others that was just the one 
that that we played um that day at Macari's and I did not go in there planning on spending that much on a fuzz pedal um until he wasn't super happy about it but I'm so glad I did it's it yeah it's fine it's it's uh, for work so okay <laughs> it was a write off <laughs> that's right <laughs> All right, let's see. Uh, John Chick Jr. Desert. This one's going to be really hard. I don't know if I'd be able to do this, honestly. Okay, here we go. John Chick Jr. says Desert Island setup under $1,500 total. Oh, you know what? We've actually done this exact thing on on the Dipped in Tone podcast that, that Zach and I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember my answer because I felt pretty good about it. Um, okay. <sighs> $1,500. All right, for an amp, I'm going to go... Fender Blues Junior four, solid. Very which I solid. think is what five hundred bucks, five fifty, something like that now. Yeah, somewhere in that ballpark. We'll call it five hundred bucks. So I got a thousand dollars to spend on a guitar and a few pedals. Um, I'll start with the pedals. I definitely want a delay, and I'm probably going to go. I'd go Carbon Copy Deluxe on the Red delay. My mind. So, yeah, yeah, I love the tap tempo. Um, I think that that pedal is a little bit undersung. Um, then I would definitely have an overdrive of some kind. Uh, all right, I'm going to come back to the overdrive. On the guitar, I'm going to say a Fender Ventera Tele Custom. Okay. Uh, the, oh. the wide range humbucker in the neck, maple neck. You know, if, if you're going to have one guitar to do everything and you have sub- a thousand bucks or sub 800 bucks to spend to me it's a telly for me um i would go revolta but that's gonna knock out the rest of my pedal budget but let's see and then let's say i have what 200 bucks left or something like that for or 100 bucks i don't even know i can't keep up but I could, so i i we might want to we might want to talk about this because i i was really curious about the ventera telly I don't know if, if we're going new or used on all this stuff, but the Ventura Tele by itself is 980 at Guitar Center. Ugh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Squire Affinity Series Tele. Okay. Straight up. Yeah. Dude, this, the Affinity stuff is great. Totally. Um, yeah. So I've, I've saved some money there. Hmm. Uh, and in some ways, a Tele is a Tele is a Tele. You know what I mean? So, to a degree. To a degree. To a degree. Yeah. Um, Oh God, the drive pedal is, that's really, it's really where I'm at. Uh, I think I know what I would say, but I'm really curious. To hear what would you say? I would do a soul food, I think. Okay. Klon style thing. Yeah. It's not normally yeah. my go-to, but I think it would work really well with the rest of that rig. Right. Because you can push the Blues Jr. into the edge of breakup territory, which is great. Like that's where that, that's where I like to live with amps. Ooh, JHS 3 Series overdrive there you go good call there There you go nice i saw it peeking out from my pedal box over there it's like there it is that's a solid (laughs) rig you could do a lot with that actually that's pretty good that's That's the thing man and if you if you were like we're gonna tell me you can only have one pedal it'd be a delay 100 percent. yeah i'm not sure probably i'd probably do a fuzz or maybe a reverb uh well see the thing is you can make a delay sort of do a reverb thing Depending That's on the true. delay, but you can't make a reverb do a delay thing. That is that is very true. You you can get you can get pretty close with the right delay settings. Yep. Yeah. 
This is a hard challenge. I, I saw that question and I was like, I don't even know what I would do. <laughs> and keep like, in mind too, the Blues Jr. has a reverb tank. So, Oh, that's right. Ooh, good call. You'd want to pick an amp that had onboard reverb. Yep. Man, that is if a If you like that call. kind of thing. That, that blows is... your skirt up, so to speak, you know. And, and, and it does. It does. <laughs> I'm just like looking behind me at the the rig I've been using to make all these weird sounds. I'm like, oh. Man, that was actually a video that I wanted to make last year was building a whole rig for $1,500 and then actually going out and get like gigging it. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to get Sweetwater to sponsor it and then just give the rig away. And obviously that didn't happen because all the gigs went away. But um, whenever that hits back up again or the gigs pick back up again, I think I'm going to try that like a $1,500 or $1,000 gigable rig and actually use it on a show. Is proof of like, yeah, I will take this out and use this kind of thing. Well, the thing is, and this has been a subject on this show a few times, like the affordable gear now, even the cheap, cheap stuff is so much better than it was when we were kids. It's not even fun. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Completely different ballpark. Like it's, it's incredible. The Squire stuff right now is incredibly good. Oh yeah. Really great. So yeah, man. Good, good answers. Well, we're getting close, and I have a couple classic questions to get into. So cool. there's some other good ones in here. Uh, let's see if there's one that we can do that that would be nice and quick at the uh, at the end. Yeah, here. I'm a bit long winded with this stuff, so <laughs> apologize. Well, it's a podcast, you know, so it goes. <laughs> All right, here's a, here's a good one. This one's short. Ryan Casey, uh, he asks if you could only have one: Strymon Deco or Flint? Flint. Flint. I- I love the Deco, but the Flint is one of the best pedals ever made. It is awesome. It's It's so good. good. Yeah. Just for the harmonic um, tremolo on there, which at its slowest speed can get into Univibe territory. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reverbs on there are incredible. I, I adore the Flint. I was expecting you to say Deco. I don't know why. See, the Deco is great, but if you make me choose one... (laughs) It's going to be the Flint. The Deco is like the most undersung Strymon pedal, I think. Maybe their drives are are less so, but people sleep on the Deco because I think they don't really get it. It's Mm -hmm. like, I don't want a tape machine. I made a video about this, like, I don't know, last year or whatever it was. Um, Go try out a Deco. I think your rig will thank you. It is incredibly versatile. It sounds amazing. If you do any kind of production work, right? You're working with drums or you're recording, you're doing vocals. You can use it. You can patch it into your Pro Tools session or Logic or whatever. Run your vocals through it, man. Run your drums through it. It'll take stereo in and out. And I've done that before. Like flange your drums or add tape saturation to your drum tracks. Or if you're using like Logic, for example, you're using Logic Drummer, which can sometimes sound kind of stiff, Dude, that deco pedal, add a little tape flange, add a little saturation, and it's instant vibe. I love that. The, the deco is, I have played all of the Strymon pedals. The deco is the only one I own. I love it's the so deco. Good. It's so good. <laughs> I also made a video about the deco and how people are sleeping on it. So that was, I think that was one of the ones from that time period. I don't remember, but it it's is so good awesome. that I want to have another one that I can use 
on my board and then have mine just out and, and leave it patched into my patch bay so I can just send stuff through it when I'm recording stuff. That is a good move. I like that a lot. That's fantastic. Oh, it's great on bass too, man. Like put a little little chorus or a little flange in your bass to make it sit in the mix a little better. It's, I'm telling you, guys, go go find a used deco somewhere and, and try it out. You won't be disappointed. You'll be very glad you did for yeah. sure. Yeah. All right, man. Well, we got a few classic questions to get into, but before we do that, this is your chance to plug anything you want to plug, tell your mother you love her, whatever <laughs> it is that you need to do. Now is your chance to do it. Love you, mom. Um, well, let's see. We just wrapped up uh season 1 of Backstage Live and we officially have the band out now. The band's called Deacon Knight. You can find find us on Instagram at deacon underscore knight. The underscore is very important. Um <laughs> search search uh without the underscore at your own risk. Um so yeah, Deacon Knight, you can follow us. We've got some original stuff coming out very soon there on Spotify and all the places that fine music is downloaded and um I guess I'll plug my podcast, Backstage Journal. We just launched um, season three of that and I've had some killer guests on Tosin Abasi and Greg Koch and Pete Thorne and Charlie Starr and, and some some really great players there. So, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. All right, here we go. Classic questions. First, what is your favorite boss pedal? <sighs> Man. Tuner, TU3. TU3. Yeah, <laughs> come on. It's becoming the most common answer. <laughs> it's just the it's the most reliable <laughs> tuner. Like, come on. <laughs> if you had to go other than the tuner. I've been telling getting people saying you, need, right, to, you right. need to eliminate the tuner. I'm gonna uh, say the blues driver. Blues driver, yeah. Yeah. Underrated. I like the blues driver quite a bit. I do too, man. Pe- hey, yeah, people sleep on the blues driver. I heard somebody tr- describe it as brittle one time, and I'm like, I don't know. That's not what I get out of a blues driver. Maybe they're brittle, but the blues driver is not brittle. If if no. if you know what you're doing, I had one when I was teaching guitar lessons, and I worked at this music studio, like you know, teaching studio thing, and um, it was like this little orange solid state practice amp, but we had a blues driver in there, and and I just I found out how to get that pedal and amp combination to do what I wanted it to do, and so it holds a special place in my heart. Perfect. I love it. All right. Final question. And the one that really gets, gets hot, gets, uh, gets things a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, but here we go. What is your favorite kind of pizza? (sighs) Shit. That doesn't sound like a very good pizza. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you want a hot take. Okay. Maybe this isn't a hot take because this this idea has been spreading around the internet for a while, but I agree with it. Chicago deep dish is not pizza. Okay. Uh, it is it is not. So that's out. Um New York style, like New York dollar pizza, you know, bodega style, where it's like a roofing shingle, it's pretty hard to beat. Um damn, I don't know, man. I'm, yeah, I'm going to say like just straight ahead, New York style pepperoni, you know, walking through Manhattan, you walk into one of those pizza shops, grab two slices for 
$2.50 walk out, eat it on the street off a paper plate. That's that's the move for me. I do. I really enjoy that move quite a bit. It's 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 a you know what? If you haven't experienced it, you should. It's almost worth the trip to Manhattan alone just to do that. I think. I agree. I and I've said this on so many episodes, but I was very uh, skeptical of the whole New York pizza thing. I'm like, it looks like pizza. It's pizza. Like, how good can it be? And then I went there and I tried it and I went, oh, I didn't understand what I, I didn't, I didn't know. I was, I was a kind of a hater. I was like, nah, come on, but guys, it's pizza. And then I, I had it and they changed my life. I love it so much. I love New York pizza. There's so, there's so many like theories about that because you're right. It is, it is different in New York. Like if, even if you, like you go to New Jersey and you eat it there, it's like, I don't know. Maybe it's just the setting. It's the environment. It's your brain telling you that it tastes better. I've heard people say that it's the water. It's the New York city water that they use to make the dough. Could that could be a thing. Um, there is one place and, and traditionally it's just like no one shop that you recommend. You just kind of walk around and, uh, yeah, I'm going to just, you know, drop in and grab a slice or whatever. But, um, Prince's pizza Mm -hmm. down on, I think it's lower East side. Um, usually it's like, there's a line around the block kind of thing, but we went there, um, back in October of 2019 was the last time I was in New York. And that might be the best pizza I've ever had in my life. They, they do something there that is just special. So yeah, if you've never been to Manhattan or the next time you get to go to New York, it's getting kind of touristy now, this princess spot, but I think it's worth finding. And honestly, it's worth waiting in line for. If there's a line around the block it and you don't have anything to do, I'd, I'd probably wait. I have heard, this is not the first time I've heard that Prince's is, is amazing. So that's going on the list. Basically, when I do go to New York, that's all I do. I like go to music stores and eat pizza, <laughs> go to comedy shows. It's, yeah, it's, man. A, it's a good time. New York is one of my favorite cities in the entire world. I have a love affair with that city because I don't live there. I think if you live there, it's a different <laughs> the different vibe. Um, but Tilly and I try and go at least two times a year because from Atlanta, it's an easy flight. It's cheap to get from Atlanta to JFK. It's like, you know, you can get like a hundred dollars ticket round trip sometimes. And so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll go up there sometimes and Usually I have gigs or something that'll end tours will usually end in New York or they'll go through New York. And so, um, but our favorite thing to do is just go and eat across that city. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait till that's an option again. That's going to be great. Dude, we've talked about that. And as soon as it, as soon as traveling makes sense again, that's probably going to be the first place we go (laughs) back to (laughs) Manhattan. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, man. Well, dude, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. And, uh, yeah, maybe we'll we'll scoot over to Patreon for a little bit here. Yeah, let's do it, man. Thank all you right, for having so, me. Of course, of course. Go check out his podcast. Go check out all this stuff. You'll be glad you did. All right, everybody. For Rhett, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. Okay. Uh, I'm actually still in the car uh, recording this outro because I don't want to risk not having a full episode ready to drop as soon as possible. So... Sorry to pull back the curtain a little bit, but I just kind of paused there, took a deep breath, and now I'm recording the outro. But I still have to go home and see if my power is going to stay on, if I still need to uh, 
be uh, using the wood stove to keep the house heated, or what's going on if we're back to normal or semi-normal. But I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, there is more on Patreon with Rhett. We had more great conversation. We, you know, we get off into the weeds in a big way. And I hope you enjoy that. You can go to patreon.com slash tone mob, where for five bucks a month, you can get extra episodes beamed directly to your ears every week. Thank you all so much for the support and go check out Rhett. And yeah, I'm going to drive home now for real and check out and see what, what the story is at my house. So yeah, uh, I'll see you all on the internet. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.